Good morning, Four Oaks Church. I'm Paul Gilbert, uh, one of the pastors here. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and so it begins. And I want to begin um, this new series on the first book of the Bible by talking about, of all things, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Not what you were expecting, right? Well, let me tell you what I mean. Often, you know, when we set, now, we talked through the book of Revelation last uh, three or four summers ago on Sunday nights, and, and, you, and if you were there, you heard me say this then, but often we come to the book of Revelation with an agenda or with a set of questions that we want the text to answer for us. Things like, when is Jesus coming back? And who is the Antichrist? Could he be my neighbor? Is the mark on Gorbachev's forehead the mark of the beast? Have I been left behind? And if you're asking that question, yes, you probably have been. But here's the point. I may have said this then. When, when we approach the text that way, we, we miss the whole point. You see, John is writing not fundamentally to answer all those questions. John is writing to, to tell us that the church wins, that Jesus is coming back, that victory is assured, that we have a sure and certain hope. Now, when we come to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which I often call the, the revelation of the Old Testament, a lot of times we approach it in the same erroneous way. We we come with a set of questions and agenda that we demand the text to answer for us. Things like, how old is the earth? How do we use Genesis to prove science? How do we use science to prove Genesis? How did Noah get a T-Rex on the ark? Okay, all these are like fascinating questions. And, and, and I say slightly tongue-in-cheek, not unimportant, not unimportant. And we're going we're gonna to tackle some of these. But please understand this morning as we embark on this series that these are not the central concerns of Genesis. And when we make them central, we're in danger of missing the very point. You see, God gave the Israelites several thousand years ago, and he gives us this book fundamentally, please hear this, to reveal who he is. This book is the story of God. God is giving it to us to remind us that he is God and that there is no other. As you hopefully kind of gathered up from this last song that Joe and team led you in and the video that accompanied it, that God is the author of life. He is the Lord of history. He's the sovereign king. He is the creator of all things. It's all his. Everything belongs to him. As Abraham Kuyper, Dutch Reformed prime minister of 150 years ago, famously said, there's not one square inch of your life or the face of this earth that Jesus does not look at and say, that belongs to me. That is the central concern of Genesis. And, and God wants us to impress that upon our own hearts this morning for, for this reason, you see, God is not content to sit abstractly in the heavens and to reign over humanity. What he desires, now please hear this, Four Oaks, is your worship. He desires, he desires our worship. That is what God is after. He's after your heart. He's after your mind. He's after your soul. And this is for his glory, and simultaneously, it's for our good. 
And sometimes we have a hard time believing that, understanding that, embracing that. But I pray this morning that as we get a running start into this book, as we, as we look at these first four words of Genesis, and really the first four or five verses, we will realize that these four words change everything. In the beginning, pause, comma, God. Now, now one of you was gracious enough to email me last night to remind me that in the Hebrew, this is actually not four words, it is three, to which I say, thank you very much, that was very helpful. No, it, it is true. It is true. There's no definite article in the Hebrew, but for us in the English, it is these four words. I'm going to invite you this morning to stand. We stand at Four Oaks when you read God's Word to, to just symbolically say, God, we are under your Word. We're not over it. We're not bringing judgment upon it or you. We're letting you speak for, for yourself and to us. So we're going to be in Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Hear the reading of God's Word. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. You may be seated. We're wont here at Four Oaks to try to give simple points, to make the complex a little more simple. So there's, there's, there's three points for us, three ways, three Three ideas I want you to walk away from this morning that I think will set a trajectory and a foundation for however long God leads us through this book, which could be to retirement for me or uh, when you kick me out, whichever happens first. But, but, but three parts. We're going to look at background. We're going to do kind of a flyover of the book itself. And then we're going to do some beginnings. What is what is. Moses, what is God really saying in these first five verses? When you came in, hopefully you got one of our, our, our sermon booklets. We provide these um, every six, eight weeks as we journey through the text that we're preaching. You can use these to take sermon notes. You can use them in your community group. They have discussion questions. You can use them in your personal devotion quiet times. They have readings that accompany um, each, of the, each of the weeks, and, and our preaching kind of follows along loosely uh, with what's happening in the book. But let's, let's, let's look at background first. You know, when I was four or five, my mom used to read me uh, Walt Disney's Uncle Remus Songs of the South book, storybook. I think I still have that book somewhere in storage around here. It's all tattered, and it's the stories of Br'er Fox and Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Bear. And these were fundamentally moral lessons that were being taught using allegories and stories and please don't throw me in that briar patch and irony and all those sorts of things. And, and it's tempting when we come to this book to think about Genesis in the same way, that it's kind of like Aesop's fables or Poor Richard's almanac 
or um, it, it's a series of, of sketches. You know, Joseph was a faithful person, be like Joseph. And, and all those have antidotes of truth in them. But we have to remember something, Four Oaks. Genesis didn't just materialize out of thin air. God didn't simply, like, by direct revelation on a set of scriptures, send down, beam down this book, these 50 chapters that we call Genesis. We have to remember that Genesis is just like every other book in the Bible. We think about the New Testament when Paul was writing the church in Philippi, for example. We want to know where Paul was. He was in jail. Why was he writing? What was he trying to say? What was this partnership in the gospel he was thanking for? And once we understand the context a little bit, then of course the, the book comes alive. Do you realize that Genesis functions in the same way? See, Genesis was written for a specific people in a specific time, in a specific circumstance, for a specific purpose. And unless we understand some of what that is, we will make catastrophic errors in this book. We, we will come to this book and ask it questions it was not meant to answer. We, we will come to this book and demand things of it that God did not intend to communicate to us. It doesn't mean that it doesn't communicate to a lot of our, our cultural concerns. In fact, it does, overwhelmingly. It doesn't mean that it doesn't speak to issues of science and creation and evolution and all those things. It certainly does. But we, we, we need to get this context down for us to really understand what God wants to communicate to us. Now, the word Genesis literally means origins, source, or beginnings. And that comes from the Greek translation of the New Testament call, of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, where the word is, is literally translated Genesis. And when we, when we hear that, we have to ask, well, the Genesis of what, or the origins of what, or the beginnings of what? And what Genesis 1 through 11 tells us is that it's the origins of mankind. It's the origins of, of the world. It's, it's what historians, theologians call primeval history. But more specifically, and this is, this is just as important, Genesis is a book about the origins of Israel, God's people. See, Genesis 12 through 50 takes us through what theologians call the patriarchal history. And we believe that the central person of that time and that era, which is Moses, we believe that he is the primary author of Genesis. In fact, of the whole Pentateuch of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, this isn't a seminary class where we can spend time on, on different critical theory and source theory and how do we know it's Moses. But let me just to appeal to someone in the Bible that I think that we all take as credible. You've heard about him. Jesus? Okay, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. We studied this a year or two ago. Now, listen carefully to what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who hold up Moses as their grand champion. He doesn't, he doesn't denigrate them for that. He just points out something. Now, listen to what he says. John chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For Now listen, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. 
Now here's, here's the important part. For he what? Wrote of me. Now I could stand up here this morning and read passage after passage after passage. What Jesus said about Genesis, what, Jesus, what Paul said about Genesis, what Paul and Jesus and the rest of the apostles said about the Old Testament. We have very popular preachers telling us things like, we need to jettison the Old Testament. The Old Testament is an embarrassment. The Old Testament is a stumbling block to genuine, authentic faith. All this stuff about sacrifice and judgment and oh my goodness. Guys, when we do that, we dishonor Christ. Because Christ said, this book is about me. Moses was writing about me. Now, in Genesis, now, when Moses wrote Genesis, this, this comes at a fascinating time in redemptive history. See, by the time God called Moses, do you remember this? He was a shepherd, and he was 80 years old, and God called him, and there was the burning bush, and we read about that in Exodus. But by the time God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt— the, now, this is important because we, we don't think about these things always. The Israelites had been in captivity for how long? 400 years. The Israelites were wandering around in the desert. And if you were wandering around in the desert for 40 years, you no doubt would be asking a whole series of questions, right? Like, like what are we doing? <laughs> where, where are we going, Moses? Why have you brought us out here? You're talking about this Yahweh, this God, but, but, but we, don't, we don't really know him. And, I mean, we, we know what you've told us about him. Remember, Four Oaks, there was no written word of God. There was no Bible. Certainly there was oral traditions and stories passed down, certainly. But, but up to that point, God had worked and acted primarily through individuals, had he not? Through the patriarchs, he would appear to Noah, and then he would appear to Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. There was no written word. This whole time, while there was no written word, Israel was doing what? They were sitting for what began as a group of 70 people from Jacob's family, all his sons. They grew over 400 years to be a nation of 2 million and, and what was happening day after day after day? They were being exposed to all sorts of idolatry. They were, they were part of a, a polytheistic culture. They were told that there was a God of everything. They were, remember, they, they worshipped little tiki statues, the Egyptians. They worshipped Ramses. And, and these are all going to be important things when we talk about what does Moses mean when he talks about the image of God what does Moses mean when he talks about God being the only God? But see, they were being exposed, indoctrinated into Egyptian religious practice. All of these polytheisms, myths, what did they need? They, need? they needed the very same thing that you and I need. They needed a word from the Lord. They needed a revelation of God. They needed a written record of who God was and who they are. Parents, let me just say this specifically to you. Your children cannot not learn. They are constantly learning. 
whether they are in school or in the home or in front of the TV or on their Instagram account or posting things on Snapchat, whatever the case may be, your kids are never not influenced by something. They're never in neutral. Now, this, this applies to adults as well. Of course, we're never, we're never in a neutral position. We're constantly learning, drawing in. This is what was happening with the Israelites. And God says, it's time. It's time for me to give a written word. It's time for me to reveal myself to them. And Moses, was he not? He was uniquely positioned to write this book, to teach and instruct the people. Remember, where was Moses raised? In the court of Pharaoh. Moses was an educated man. He was exposed to all sorts of religious teachings. He knew the ancient myths. He knew the polytheistic culture. He knew the law codes. He knew the language. All of these things, God sovereignly inspiring Moses worked through his personality, worked through his background to give us this book that we now have 3,000 years later. We're calling this series, by the way, and you'll see this on your book, Foundations. Foundations. And one of the reasons we're calling it this is because, you know, we're just like the Israelites so often. We're so like the Israelites in that we forget who we are. We forget why we're here. We we, 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 we're, we're consumed with the what of life or the where, where do I go, where do I send my kids to school, how much do I save, what are my hobbies, what are my, I mean, all, all of the things that make up the activity and the, and the culture of life. And so often we don't slow down, pause, reflect, and ask the why. And that's what Genesis is meant to communicate to us. It's it's meant to communicate the why. Do you know that all the ma- when, when we when we disregard books like Genesis, we 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 undercut the authority of the apostles Jesus and really the entire New Testament because all of the major themes of the Bible are in this book: faith, marriage, sexuality, sin, judgment, imputed righteousness atonement, redemption. This is why, folks, this book is very pertinent for us. And, and also, let me say this before we move on to the second point. This is, a, this is a great book that not only you need and I need, but the world needs, your neighbor needs, your friends need, people you work with need. We're coming up here on a season where this is the season people are, are most likely of any time of the year to visit a church or come to a church whether it's a Good Friday service or an Easter service or um, because they're looking for youth group for their, for their kids, we really want to pray that God would use this series in a powerful way to show Tallahassee, to show our neighborhoods who he is. A lot of the questions that are burning questions for us that we can't fully explore even in our times here on Sunday morning, we're going to, to do a series of what we what we do here every so often here for it's called pastor classes and we'll announce these topics and dates they're going to run during the month of may where we talk about things like science and faith and culture and gender and role and marriage and work and all the things that are really burning cultural issues for us for you to come to bring your to bring your friends to 
But this is a book that was highly pertinent, which is an understatement of the century, to the Israelites. It's highly pertinent, relevant to us now. So that's, that's some of the background. Let's, secondly, let's, let's do a flyover of the book itself. Let's talk about just the general scope of, of Genesis and then I want to talk about how Genesis fits into the rest of the Bible, why, why it's so important, how it connects the dots for us. The first two chapters we're going to see is God and mankind, God and man and woman in blissful communion. There is harmony in marriage. There is peace with God. There is no conflict in the garden. There is, there is work. There is worship. There is... There is rest. There is communion horizontally in relationship. There's communion vertically with God. Working, worshiping, serving. Man is living in perfect peace with his sovereign creator. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis 3, if this is spoiler alert, okay, we're a few thousand years late, but you will get there. Sin enters the picture. And when I say sin enters the picture, that's the greatest understatement of all time, right? That's like saying Hurricane Michael impacted the panhandle. (laughs) Sin wreaks havoc. Sin wreaks misery, brokenness on God's created order. But what we're going to find in Genesis 3.15, I think, is the greatest promise. This is a little pastoral hyperbole. It's the most foundational promise in all of Scripture. How about that? Genesis 3.15, this is what God says to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we'll, we'll unpack this when we get to it. But here's fundamentally what God is saying. There's going to be two lines, two races, two seeds fundamentally, foundationally, that will make up the human race. There are going to be those who don't follow me, who don't worship me, who don't acknowledge me as the true God. They're going to be the offspring of the flesh. They're the offspring of of Satan. But there are going to be those who do know me, who do worship me, who do follow me, who do place their faith in me. Those are my people. And what Genesis is, fundamentally... It's the story of how God begins the redemption process to save you and to save me if you will trust in him, if you will place your faith in Christ. It's it's the story of how God begins to prepare the way for the anointed Messiah. Genesis is the place where God goes about reclaiming a broken world for himself. See, we're going we're gonna, to, as we come to Genesis chapter 11, we're going to find that sinful humanity is in rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. Or if you're from East Tennessee, Babel, right? Babel, right? And we're going to find out, because they're not coming together and being one and all that as God desires them to be, so he just decides to scatter them. And he starts over. And he chooses one person by his grace, a guy named Abram. And he said, this is the man that I'm going to bring the line of promise from. And we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons in the nation of Israel. That's where we leave Genesis 50. The nation of Israel 
raised up. But why was God doing all this? Just, just so they'll have a cool genealogical chart? Just so they'll know their family history? No, no, no. It's so that you could be here today. God says, through the seed of Abraham, the promise of Abraham, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to redeem not just a family, not just a nation, just not a particular ethnic group, but I'm going to redeem all who would come and place their faith in me. This is no longer a tribal religion because I'm the creator God over all the earth and I'm here to redeem the earth. Genesis provides that pathway, that trajectory. It's interesting how many times the New Testament writers go and quote Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And and unless we know the context, unless we know what God's redemptive plan is, these things won't make sense for us. Now, we're going to find some interesting features of Genesis. That's an understatement. There's going to be certain formulas and patterns that might seem a little shall we say, odd to us as 21st century Americans, there's something called the Toledoth. And and if you've read, if you've ever been on one of those Bible reading plans and you're supposed to read through the Bible and you get to, you're you're, you're doing great until you get, you know, Genesis 1 through 4. But what happens when you get to Genesis 5? You've got the Hittites, the Jezerites, mosquito bites, right? And you like blow right past it. And, and we become bored with these things. But you know what's interesting? There's 10 times this happens in, in Genesis. 10 times. And by the way, buddy, we are preaching through those. Why? Because they're not boring genealogies. They're for you and I to remind us as we look, we want to be able to see God's divine initiatives of grace. There is some jacked up people in Genesis. There is some messed up people in those and those genealogies. But you know what? God's grace always wins. God triumphs. God gets his way. God saves his people. It is not an exaggeration for me to tell you that Genesis is fundamentally a book of grace. Listen to what Bruce Walkie says. He says, God's promise to establish his kingdom through his grace that overcomes human sin is the governing theme of Genesis. Because when we preach through those genealogies and all those names you can't pronounce, and we point out certain things, and you're going to say, you know, I identify with that man. I identify with that woman. I'm a broken guy too. I have a broken marriage and broken kids and broken finances and a broken history. But whoa, God's grace is greater. See, Genesis is not a book of works. Salvation, please understand this, has always been through grace, by grace, through faith. One of the most important verses in all of the Bible that the New Testament writers quote repeatedly, Genesis 15, 16, talking about Abram, what does it say? And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Whew. There, Genesis is good news. Because if it's how many sacrifices or how many laws we keep or how much we obey, we're sunk. Not that those things aren't important. But what is foundational in this book is God's grace and his pursuit of redemption in your life and in mine. So that's some, that's some background. And we'll obviously be circling around to all those things down the line. Lastly, beginnings. And here I just want to 
in the last few minutes that we have, I just want to unpack a few things, pertinent things, in these first five verses that I think will help us set a course for where we're going. It says in verse 1, one of the most familiar verses in all the Bible, in the beginning, God. And when we see the word God, please understand that in the Old Testament, a number of words are used, um, Hebrew words are used to describe God, depending upon how God is functioning and relating to his people at that particular time. So, so the idea that God is Yahweh, he's the covenant-keeping God. But God has not revealed himself in that way yet. He reveals himself here as Elohim, which is the title God uses when he wants to communicate, listen, his supremacy, his transcendent relationship to creation. It's the word that denotes that God is everywhere. That God is not some little tribal religion. God is not some little tiki statue in your closet. God is not some idol you hide in your heart. God is everywhere. He is the reality around which all other realities orbit and are government and are governed. Genesis never debates this, by the way. Genesis never pulls out the theistic proofs and the ontological argument and this philosophical argument or that, the teleological argument. It doesn't do that. It's just assumed. It's simply declared as a matter of fact, as a statement of supreme reality in the beginning, God. Now, philosophical materialism which says that matter is all there is, would, would scoff at this. Yet we would have to ask, but where did this matter come from? Who gave it life? Can nothing come from nothing? Sounds like a Julie Andrews song, right? Can nothing come from nothing? You see, atheism, agnosticism, understand something, is just another form, not of faith, but of blind faith. But see, Christianity doesn't have that problem. You may ask, well, then where did God come from? Understand something. We're on a whole different plane. We're not talking about time. God didn't come from anything because he's eternal. He's always been he always is. He always will be. Now, granted, that will bake your noodle if you think about it too much, right? That, that will, but, but, but we're not talking about nothing coming from nothing. God invented the nothingness. God created the matter. God created the space. Who created God? You're running into the same issue. We, don't, we can't use categories applied to God like creation because he's eternal, and which is why we're going to need all of eternity just to begin to wrap our minds around it. It'll take that long, quote-unquote, for us to truly come to know God. Do you realize, God, we will never stop knowing, learning, understanding who God is in heaven. Never. You know, in this life, when we think about something going on and on and on and never, never having a culmination or ending it, it gets, it's a little wonky, it's a little despairing, it's a little disorienting. 
That's not how heaven's going to be. Heaven is going to be waking up each day for a grand new adventure of discovering who God is. That's what Elohim communicates to us. Let's keep going in verse 1. It says that God created the heavens and the earth. It's sort of a summary statement of this entire account we find in Genesis 1 and 2. It's Moses' way of saying that God and God alone created everything. You see, Israelites living in Egypt with pagan myths and cosmology and polytheism, we, we have to understand against that backdrop what Genesis is. Now, this is important, and we're not going to dive too deeply into this today. We're going to really embrace it next week. Genesis is a polemic. Genesis is an argument. Genesis is a counter to the prevailing worldview. See, in, in ancient, near, ancient Near East, not dissimilar to our own culture, many gods, all leading in the same place, all maybe doing different things and, and have different sort of attributes, but fundamentally they're all heading in the same direction. But when we see here that God created the heavens and the earth, God, singular, one God, we'll talk about persons in just a second, created everything that is. The heavens and the earth, the totality of the universe, of the cosmos. Isaiah 45.5 reminds us what Moses is trying to say here. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And as we get into this book, we'll understand that, oh, Pastor Paul, we're way too sophisticated to be worshiping little idols and statues and, and sort of things. Oh, yeah, you're right. We are much more sophisticated. Our idolatry is just so much more subtle, which makes it so much more dangerous. It says in verse 2 that this earth that God initially creates in time and space, by the way, is chaotic and uninhabited. Now, now, understand, what is Moses trying to communicate here? I think he's trying to show us that only God can bring life. Only God can bring life. What we have here in verse 2 where it says the Spirit is hovering over the water, we're going to find here that we have the first although faint, but, but, but clear allusions to the fact that God is one being, but he is three persons. That his spirit is essential for the creation of life. Where have we heard this before? Remember John 3? When, when Jesus talks about the wind blowing where it may, the wind gives life, he's talking about the spirit. It's almost as if John read Genesis. Isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah, he did, because how does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. John is, Moses is showing us that, that only the Spirit brings life. And here we have in verse 3, and God said, let there be light. That's kind of, that's, that's another sort of, I mean, it's easy just to glance over it like, and God said, and Pastor Paul said, and you said, and we said, no, 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 no. The word literally means divine command or fiat. In other words, speak, and thus it happens. 
Just, just say something. Just, just speak it into existence. Augustine called this ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. How did God create? He didn't need anything. He just had to say the word. Hebrews 11.3 describes it this way. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by what? The word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. They were spoken into existence. Now, there's a massive significance to this. Because this isn't just how God works in the material world. Understand something. This is how God works in your heart. This is how God works spiritually. Now, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6, he's quoting Genesis 1. And listen to what he says all of this is pointing to. Listen to this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, we just read that, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? You know those dark waters that were uninhabited that had no life? Folks, that's your heart. That's mankind's heart. Both the formless earth and your heart need the same thing. They need the light of the gospel. They need life given to them. See, it's a great reminder for us that you can believe that God made everyone and everything and recite the kids' catechism and give us that answer. What, who, who made all things? God made all things. Do you know you can know that but be as lifeless as that carpet on the floor? You can know that, but, but have a heart that's cle- completely unaffected by his spirit. Having that knowledge will do you no good unless the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ has shone in your heart. See, ultimately, ultimately, that's what Genesis is all about. It's preparing the way for that. Don't get me wrong, we're going to address a lot of issues all the way from science to capital punishment to you, you name it, we're going there. Because God goes there. But understand, those all serve a larger point. God is preparing the way in the book of Genesis for Jesus to come and to die so that he would have your worship. Acts 14, 15, and we're done. Here's what Paul says. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. And what's the good news? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Turn your heart to the living God today. And that only happens through the seed of promise, Jesus Christ, who came to die so that you could have life and forgiveness of sin. Let's pray.